So that's the delusion. It's like, oh, I'm really caring for them or I'm going to fix their problem. And really, you're not giving them the integrity. You're not giving them the chance to solve something on their own. And when someone becomes so preoccupied with someone else, I'm sure you've seen this over the years, they can get sick. I mean, codependency to me has just as severe consequences as addiction. I mean, it's interesting because when I went to that treatment center at 10 years sober, there was this board. I think I say this in the book, but on in the board, they were like addicts, 95% issues and problems, 5% addiction, codependents, 100% issues and problems (laughs) because they don't have the addiction to kind of get the relief. So they're just constantly in anxiety or rage or whatever. Tears roll down your face Reaching for something Someone to embrace To numb Welcome to Sobriety Checkpoint. Are you a parent in recovery, wishing for peace and emotional sobriety? Do you find yourself up late at night, Googling things like, how to overcome negative thinking, or why is my heart racing? Do you wake up with big, ambitious goals only to feel resentful and irritable when you put everyone else's needs first and leave no time for yourself again? Hey, I'm Felicia. I'm a 12-step returned therapist, and I too have battled anxiety and that critical inner voice. All I wanted was peace and just a little bit of time to myself. I tried to strive and achieve to find happiness, but that only left me with more anxiety. I finally realized I needed to discover my true identity to find the peace I was striving to attain. In this podcast, you're going to find solutions to navigating mental health, spirituality, and relationships to experience the peace you've been craving. It's time for that desperately sought-after solo target run. Grab your keys and let's go for a drive. There's no judgment or breathalyzer at this sobriety checkpoint. By the beauty of it all, recognize I was always destined to fall into deepest dark. We are stronger than we think we are. So fight. And show your strength. Welcome back to another episode of Sobriety Checkpoint. Before we get started, I'd like to invite you to become a Sobriety Checkpoint Insider. By becoming an insider, you'll get weekly updates with the latest podcast episode, emotional sobriety and self-care tips, as well as early bird access to special offers. I'm excited to announce that I am now offering emotional sobriety coaching. So if you'd like to meet one-on-one, please reach out and schedule a call. My contact info is in the show notes. You can also head over to Facebook and join my community, where you're going to find other parents in recovery seeking solutions to emotional sobriety through exploring mental and emotional health, spirituality, and relationships. Check out the show notes for the Insider and Facebook group links. I hope to see you in there. Lastly, don't forget to subscribe to my show, leave a review, and share it with a friend. Reviews help boost my ratings, which helps other parents in recovery find my show. Thank you so much, and I'm super grateful for your support. All right, now let's get started. 
Today, I had the pleasure of chatting with Dr. Sarah Michaud. Dr. Michaud is a clinical psychologist who has worked in the addiction field for 30 years. She recently published a book called Co-Crazy, One Psychologist's Recovery from Codependency and Addiction, a memoir and manual for freedom. She's been sober for almost 40 years and brings her humor, directness, compassion, and insight to support folks in recovery. She recently launched a YouTube channel called Leaving Crazy Town with her sober attorney buddy, Finn. They discuss all things codependency and addiction while having lots of laughs. You can find more info about her in the show notes, including her website and YouTube links. I highly recommend her book. It's completely a handbook for codependency, and I think it's a really great book to jump around. The book is full of pithy, quote-worthy statements. It's definitely something I plan on revisiting. So let's jump right in. Sarah, can you tell me about why you decided to write this book? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting you're saying that because for the first time, someone in program started a group three weeks ago, a 30-week group doing my book, and they had questions each week. And so it was a book study, which I was, they had me there the first night because so much of it is people in program that are stuck with relationship issues. And that's really where it's at. And the reason I wrote the book is because being a psychologist for 30 years or whatever, it just seemed there was ongoing themes constantly. I saw mainly people in recovery or trying to get sober and clean. And I say this in the book, but if everybody could speak up, say their truth and set boundaries, I wouldn't have a job. And that's really how I felt is that most people really struggled with even identifying what their truth was, let alone expressing it, or identifying even what they're feeling and expressing it. Because everybody, and they say this in the big book, right? Self-centeredness and selfishness are the root of our troubles, and self-centered fear holds us back from everything. And I mean, the reason I wrote the book was because I felt like the old definition of codependency, which was like Melody Beattie and Pia Melody back in the 60s and 70s and Claudia Black, it started with kind of the classic housewife married to the male alcoholic. And that's kind of where it began. But the more I've been sober and working with people, it just seemed like Everybody has codependency to a certain degree. I work with new mothers and their first year of being a new mother, they were so terrified and they were overcompensating and controlling and trying to figure everything out all the way to people like myself who married someone in recovery who relapsed. To me, I wanted to really broaden the definition to the human condition. I mean, all of us have fear. And the thing is, because we develop in a certain family and environment, we will relate to other people based on our past. And that's really what codependency is. Not being able to speak up for yourself or identify what your needs are or be more in tune with what's happening for you because you're so focused on other people and external circumstances. And therefore, you're more preoccupied with what they think and need rather than what you think. Yeah. One of the things that I like is how much you talk about your experience. 
Yeah. So this isn't just a book about your experience as a psychologist, because it's definitely in there, but it's right. your personal experience about growing up, how that was for you, and finding an escape through alcohol. Right. Absolutely. Um, if you could share a little bit about that, one of the things that caught my attention was internalizing like your mom's stress. Right. And feeling responsible for her emotions, wanting to fix your parents as early as right. the age of four. Well, that's what was, yeah. it was so funny because I was talking to my buddy. We do this YouTube channel called Leaving Crazy Down. And we were talking about the origins of our codependency. And so often, if you grow up, and it doesn't have to be alcoholism. I mean, it could be any kind of stress in a family. From early on, not all kids, but if your parents are distressed, a kid might feel uncomfortable and therefore feel like I need to take care of mom or reduce their stress because I want to feel better. And so this paradigm gets created of, oh, if other people outside of me are upset and they're not managing it on their own, like say they were in a bad marriage or they don't have support, then the child often feels like it's their responsibility to fix it. And that's kind of where I see the origin of a lot of people's codependency comes from, for right or wrong. I mean, it's not good or bad. It's just if a kid sees a parent's distressed and they're not handling it, they automatically want to change it because they don't want their parents to be distressed, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that dynamic can start so, so early. And for me, yeah, because I grew up in alcoholism and my dad was a vet and he had PTSD and had a lot of anger. And yet I lived in this very kind of normal suburban town. And on the outside, everything looked okay. But inside and inside many of the homes around were chaos and a lot of drinking. And um, so a lot of us learned that it was kind of like, you kind of were winging it from an early age. I mean, in the big book, they talk about self-reliance. You create like, I've got to figure this out. I've got to do it all on my own because these people don't know what they're doing. And that's when kind of the original beliefs start. When you were speaking right now, what came up for me was the word control. And because thinking that we can control somebody else's feelings and the fact that that starts so soon. Why do you think that is? Well, I think part of it is if we don't have parents that are comfortable with their own feeling experiences, then they're not going to be comfortable with our feeling experiences. So I really think if you're growing up and someone is making it okay, like bringing my son up, if he was angry, it was like, okay, feel your anger, you know, go outside and run around the house. I told him one time. You know, so if you have a parent who's comfortable with feelings, then I think you can teach your child to be comfortable with feelings. But so much of parenting is being uncomfortable with your child having feelings. So you need to do something rather than allowing them to have their feelings. And I think that's where it can start. If you teach your kids that feelings are just normal that they're part of the human experience. I mean, that's what the irony about this whole thing is, is human beings have feelings. I mean, that's mm -hmm. what we do. We feel sad, we feel happy, we feel angry, we feel grief. And yet, if you have parents that aren't comfortable with that, 
they're not going to be able to honor that or validate that. And so you learn that it's not okay to have those feelings. I mean, and plus that's what getting sober is about. You're having these feelings and your parents are like, the message is it's not okay to feel them. So initially I may just repress them. And then of course, the minute I pick up their food or booze or drugs or success or what, or shopping or whatever it is to quell all those feelings, then it just gets delayed. So then when I get sober, what's my job again? The job is, oh, I have to notice how I'm feeling and identify how I'm feeling. So it's like all the way back to when it first began. Mm -hmm. And yet again, the irony is that's what human beings do. So it shouldn't be pathological to have feelings. But for some parents, it's just very uncomfortable. Yeah. And I mean, I think that part of that is just generational. Right. These belief systems that just are implemented generation after generation after generation. Absolutely. Um, Part of our culture. I mean, especially Western society with being able to do everything on your own, having control over everything in your life and being able to do it on your own. Right. But we need people. We need each other. We need, I mean, you can't get sober, I don't think, in a vacuum. Well, unless there's no alcohol there, yeah. then you'll get sober, right? <laughs> the only way you can get sober in a vacuum is if there's right. no alcohol there. But how many people have you met around that don't like to ask for help? I mean, a friend of mine's like, I have to be bleeding on the ground, like hardly functioning to be able to ask. But it's so true. Mm-hmm. It feels uncomfortable for some reason for a lot of people. And yet it's so part being human. Yeah. We love to help people. Why wouldn't we give someone that privilege of helping us? It's the same thing. Yeah. I had a sponsor tell me the importance of asking someone. And the way that she phrased it was, how does it feel when somebody asks you for help? Exactly. And you get this good feeling and it's almost like a gift. Exactly. It's a gift to the other person. Ask them for help because most people are happy to feel honored. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And just to talk about the control thing a little bit, Felicia, because you were asking about that. I mean, that to me is literally one of the quintessential components of being codependent. And again, it goes back to, so I'm in a situation where I'm uncomfortable with what someone else is doing or saying or feeling. And instead of me checking in with myself and resolving what's happening over here, I feel like I need to control what they're doing, but it's really about so I can feel okay. That's the missing piece with a lot of this work is the deception is, oh, they're upset and I need to change it rather than no, I'm upset because I can't tolerate my feelings about them being upset, but it's always bringing it back to us. So controlling behavior is huge with codependency. And in the book, I give a list because a lot of people, if I say control to them, they're like controlling. They don't really see how it's manifesting in their lives. I mean, you could be controlling by the silent treatment. You can be controlling in all kinds of ways. Being angry and aggressive isn't the only way to try to control something. And even the opposite, right? You could be the nicest. So nice. So caring. Absolutely. Martyr. Well, and that's another huge kind of character structure of the codependent. I'm the caretaker and I'm always exhausted 
and I'm always doing everything for everybody. And why isn't anybody appreciating me and all that stuff? And yet, when you really do a deeper dive with it, it's what am I getting out of being that way? What's getting in my way of saying no? What's getting in my way of asking for what I need? What's getting in my way of feeling my own feelings of frustration or anger or whatever? That the people pleasing is literally just a behavior that might have been created when you were a kid because it really helped you survive. But the problem with a lot of those behaviors that were developed in those coping skills is they don't necessarily work as adults. That's the trouble. They don't get us what we need as adults. People pleasing is very common also to women, general, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> something more about feelings that this is something that I highlighted. So let me find it. Yeah. So I loved this sentence. I was operating like a relief seeking missile all of my life. I was trying to run away from my own thoughts and pain, although unaware. And that really stood out to me, operating like a relief-seeking missile. And we all are seeking relief. No matter whether there are substances involved or not, it's about trying to find relief, trying to find pleasure, running from pain. And it's cultural. Once again, it is in our culture. It's in, I mean, I think there's deep roots there. Kind of even the American dream to be happy and everything that that you want this word unaware so once you become aware it almost feels like there's all of this muck that just sort of rises to the surface all of a sudden once you actually see it once you accept that oh man i am controlling and then what i know it's a long process but do you have a couple of things like how do you even get started Well, so much of it is we joke on the YouTube channel about the two words we use all the time, which is just notice. But it's so true because even when I got sober years ago, for the first 10 to 15 years of my sobriety, I really just achieved. I went back to school. I started working all the time. So I was still medicating just with other things. I got into a series of relationships over and over again. It's a great example of, I didn't know I was in pain. I didn't know I was still running because I was sober. Mm -hmm. I mean, I put down drugs and alcohol, but I didn't realize, and I don't know if I say this, that I literally went to treatment at 10 years sobriety because I was feeling insane. I was just feeling super anxious. I was not having successful relationships. And I felt so lost and I went to kind of a, I hadn't relapsed, but it was the codependency. I mean, codependent bottoms can be just as serious as addiction bottom because relationships aren't working. And for so many of us, relationships feel like relief. Oh, I'm in a relationship, right? We should be fine, which is not true because usually I said this to my son when he started dating, I said, The first 90 days of any relationship, just count on every single issue being activated because it's so intense when you have those feelings. And so you're right. It's trying to find relief everywhere and then finally stopping. The first step, I think, is just learning how to identify what's happening for you. Because I don't think you can change a behavior unless you know what the underlying feelings are that you're trying to escape. 
And so often what's happening in the present is really not about the present. It's about the past. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if you and you probably know this from program stuff, if you get what I call activated or you get really angry with something, it's having the awareness that, oh, if I'm in an overreaction, that's usually a sign that it's about the past. That anything that's kind of an extreme feeling is really a warning. Oh, I'm not really seeing this person for who they are right now. I'm having an activation from the past. So that's a really big tip to know that, geez, if the person at Dunkin' Donuts gives me the wrong coffee and I lose it on them, it's not about the coffee. Do you know what I mean? It's right, about right, right. else. I mean, the first step is just trying to get familiar with your feeling states and starting to notice that. And you may know this. I studied Buddhism for like the first 10 years of my sobriety. And a big part of that is your thoughts are just thoughts. Mm-hmm. And that's another really liberating piece. If you can get that. Did you read The Untethered Soul? That book came out a few years ago. And it was really great. You would love it. Yeah, it's all about, he talks about the roommate in your head and that our thoughts, if we can get spaciousness around our thinking and not believe all our thoughts, that's a huge tool too, because our thoughts are typically from the past too, just like our feelings are. So if we can get some space around our feeling states and our thinking, then our behaviors are going to be much different. It's when we're reacting to believing our thoughts and thinking our feelings are valid. I mean, that is the wrong word. But if we're like, oh, that person really did piss me off and I get to do this, we're going to keep operating from the past rather than the present. So that's what I try to distinguish in the book a lot, too. I think I see that, that 99% of the time you get angry, it's not about the present moment. but People want to be able to blame and put the focus out there rather than take responsibility. And that's, to me, seeing clients for a long time, it was the people that realized they were responsible for their recovery that got better. If someone was still blaming their ex or their mother 10 years later or whatever, my trauma that happened, and the focus was outside, they really got stuck. So that's another piece of, why I wrote the book, because I'd gone to Al-Anon meetings a lot. And the delusion of Al-Anon and of the codependency piece is, oh, I'm fixing someone else. And yet what's happening is they're not getting better and I'm not getting better. So that's the delusion. It's like, oh, I'm really caring for them or I'm going to fix their problem. And really, you're not giving them the integrity. You're not giving them the chance to solve something on their own. And when someone becomes so preoccupied with someone else, I'm sure you've seen this over the years, they can get sick. I mean, codependency to me has just as severe consequences as addiction. I mean, it's interesting because when I went to that treatment center at 10 years sober, there was this board. I think I say this in the book, but on in the board, they were like addicts. 95% issues and problems, 5% addiction, codependence, 100% issues and problems (laughs) because they don't have the addiction to kind of get the relief. So they're just constantly in anxiety or rage or whatever. 
Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. A few of the things that you, there was two words. Yeah. One was stop and the other was space. Mm-hmm. And this has been kind of a topic of conversation a lot lately is rest and the importance of creating that space and having some time to actually feel, which is the hardest thing ever. And even if you have a desire to do it, sometimes it's like, how do you even do that when you have kids? Kids. For me, that's a really big, yeah, I don't know if it, sometimes it's a reason, sometimes it might be an excuse, right? There's a right. difference there. And right. because of life being full, it's like, okay, how do I create that space to even try to even start working on myself? Yes. Because sometimes motherhood, it's just nonstop 24 hours a day. Parenthood too, right? I mean, for you dads, they're listening as well. So absolutely. No, you're absolutely right. It definitely requires effort and usually requires setting a boundary of some kind. Do you know what I mean? I mean, with the moms I've seen over the years, the experience of I have to do A, B, and C. And maybe they do, but it's usually not feeling guilty by taking some time and space for yourself. Because I think when moms say, oh, I asked my friend to watch my kids for a couple hours so I could go do X, they immediately feel bad. And instead of framing it in a way like, you need this for your sanity. This is actually going to make you a better mom. But there's something about we're supposed to be able to do it all, which is a delusion. When you get rest and when I get rest, when I had a young child, I was a better parent. You know, I remember when my son was a baby going to this gym just because they had babysitting and I sat in the world. That's all I <laughs> I just went to get, they had a maximum hour and a half and I would just go so I could get an hour and a break. Do you know what I mean? So you're right. It's very hard. And I still see moms that are a mom recently I saw Really hard for her. She has three kids, and yet she's also seen how she creates chaos to not deal with things, especially her marriage. Mm. Do you know what I mean? So I think that can be kind of, you said, one thing is to need to take a break, and another thing is resisting to take time because you don't want to face reality. Mm-hmm. That's a whole other piece. Right. that's very common, too. I mean, how many people do you know that have kids and then the next thing you know, they, they're they just busy for 15 years and then the kid graduates from high school and then they get divorced. Like, well, what happened for those? Because they didn't really want to face what was happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so you're right. So that's a great tip for everybody listening. If you need space, join a gym that has childcare. Right. You know. Go sit in the sauna, maybe sit in the locker room, read a book. <laughs> I'm That's telling you what saved me. Mm-hmm. And they had the other thing that saved me was there was a Saturday morning women's meeting with babysitting. It started because a bunch of the moms who went to this meeting had young kids. And so they ended up hiring a babysitter and it was a church where they actually had a kid's room. And so a bunch of us went there and they had a playroom for kids and that we pitched in to pay for a babysitter. I mean, that was another thing that was huge. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember just like I couldn't wait till Saturday to get those couple hours of connection and a break. 
It's really figuring out in your community ways to get rest. Absolutely critical. Yeah. And that goes back to the asking for help piece and feeling you have control over everything, right? So we take that into becoming parents and feeling like we have to do everything on our own. Just so much responsibility. Oh, and there's also the delusion that you're supposed to know how to do it. I mean, it's the other thing that, I mean, I wasn't a parent until I was 40. So I had like started my career and been doing all this stuff. And I guess 40, the thing I did know is I was okay with knowing I didn't know. But Mm -hmm. when I was in a mom's group early on, it just seemed like a lot of the women like there's this belief that you're supposed to know how to do all this stuff when who's going to teach us? Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, would you take 30 seconds and share it with another parent in recovery who may be looking for solutions to mental health in sobriety? Also, please leave a quick review on Apple Podcasts so that other parents just like you can find the show. I'm super excited to know this podcast is helping you. Tune in Thursdays for the latest episode. I'll see you back here on your next Target Run. Until next time. We are stronger than we think we are. So fight and show your strength. Learn grace from our God. Learn grace from our God. Learning grace from our God, oh, learning grace from our God.